You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi there, my name is Alvin Brown, and I'm the pastor of Guest Experience and Technology. Yeah, yeah, so welcome to Mosaic. If this is your first time here in the room with us or if you are joining us online, thank you so much and we are so glad that you are here with us as we continue in week four of a series entitled Beloved, How the Gospel Makes Us Whole. And so far, we've journeyed through the book of 1 John, learning from Apostle John's gospel and letter what it means to become and to be a people that has made whole through fellowship with God and our fellow believers, as well as experiencing truth and knowing who God is. And finally, as we heard last week, God's love for a multi-generational family of disciples of Jesus. So in today's passage, which is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we will continue to cultivate the wholeness that God is working in and through our lives. So let's open our Bibles, and why don't you stand with me as we honor today's scripture reading as I will read from 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. And it reads, and what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Christ. Dear friends, also beloved, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he, Christ, is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he may take away our sins, and in him, Christ, there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin either has seen or known him. Dear children, beloved, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because we all know the devil has been working this one soundtrack from the beginning of time, sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy this very work of the devil. See, no one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And let all God's people say amen Amen. to the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, for those of you that are taking notes today, the title of this message is Practicing What? You preach. I figured, Jesus, it was going to land like that. (laughs) Practicing what you preach. You better buckle up. 
So today we will specifically dive into understanding the meaning of a phrase that the Apostle John so frequently used throughout his letter to early church followers of Jesus Christ. The phrase, children of God. Now as I was praying, reading, studying, and preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of a story that hits quite close to home with my own children in regards to practicing what you preach. And now my wife and I, we aim our hearts, we do our very best to love, lead, instruct, and even course correct our kids and ourselves as we all follow Jesus daily. But like any good father, y'all, this is just me. I don't know about you, but this is me. I love jokingly giving my kids a hard time and watching them squirm from time to time when the opportunity presents itself. Case in point. About four or five years ago, every week, if not every day, and without fail, the following question was, and it's still asked today, what are we eating for dinner? <laughs> to which I or my wife often respond, I don't know what sounds good. To which our three children, who were then all under the age of six, they often shouted and still shout to this, na- this day the, the name of the holy chicken wonder, Chick-fil-A. Amen? <laughs> to which I then decide to turn the tables on the kids and asking them this critical question. And do y'all have any money to pay for this Chick-fil-A? Now, y'all throwing out all these eateries, but who is going to pay for it? Because after all, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, the one who is not willing to work shall not eat up in the brown house. I didn't write that. I just implemented, I just acted on it. Oh, what golden dad moments these are, y'all. This is like the, the prime just time of my life messing with my kids as they sit quietly realizing the implications of being children who are unemployed and they have not a dollar to their name other than what mom and dad have. Now, here's the thing. While these are teachable moments of just, you know, indoctrinating our heart in their hearts, rather, the spiritual principles of God, these are teachable life moments. But fast forward one year later to where I find myself the recipient of seeking the Lord for greater clarity in regards to his assignment of heaven coming to earth. Said less to Christianese, a brother was laid off and looking for a job. And so, this same evening though, my wife had prepared dinner and she had set the table and as she often does, she yells to the kids and myself, hey, dinner is ready. Now, as I approached the table to sit down with my son, my oldest son, who happened to be four or five at this time, you know, he had a puzzled look on his face as he looked directly at me and he said these words. Hey, daddy, you don't have a job, right? And y'all, without thinking, I I responded, yes, that's right. Daddy is believing and praying for God to provide his next assignment. Y'all, and just like that, see, he abruptly seizes the moment. He seized this moment with his little inquisitive face as he inquired, and he said the following to me. He says, "Uh, Daddy, since you don't have a job, then that means you can't eat, right? Yikes. And y'all, just like that, just like that, my little carbon copy was seriously practicing what his father had jokingly preached. 
And as I helplessly stared at my wife, his mother, who had a growing sheepish grin on her face, y'all literally, I stared just hoping, asking God, please give me a witty comeback to this little boy. But thankfully, I found favor with the Lord, and my good thing, my wife, she spoke up and addressed our son with table-turning questions of her own, which were, but don't you love daddy so much that you want him to sit and eat with us? Doesn't daddy always love you and allow you to eat? Whoo, pins and needles, y'all. I was like, let's watch and wait and pray as we watched him turn his attention from his mother to old dad sitting in the proverbial hot seat. He then responded and said, Daddy, I love you, and you can sit and eat with us, even though you don't have a job. (sighs) Come on, y'all. Like, we got the first part of this right, but about the second part of that. And so what happened in this moment? Well, in that moment, might I submit to you that our son's heart was transformed to practice a greater biblical commandment to wholeheartedly love his father as Christ has loved us, his children, the church. Which leads me to, have you ever experienced a moment where someone's actions did not line up to the words they professed? Better yet, have you personally ever experienced a moment where someone held your actions accountable to the words you professed? How did you handle that situation? I mean, were you defensive and dismissive or were you graciously open to accountability and correction? Now, see, in that moment with my son, see, y'all, when he said what he said about me not having no job, I really could have pulled rank as an adult and as a parent and been a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do hypocrite, a.k.a. Pharisee. And see, I could have been rooted in pride, y'all, and I could have easily weaponized the scripture of Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, about children obeying and honoring their parents while completely disregarding the very next verse, verse 4, about fathers not provoking their kids to anger all over some holy chicken. Imagine that. Now, I know you're likely wondering, right about now, you're probably saying, but Pastor Alvin, what does this story truly have to do with practicing what we preach and being the children of God that John writes about in today's passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. So as we'll discover today, John appeals in love to the early church of Christians and to us too today about practicing what we preach through the lens of being born again, as well as receiving or having received the Holy Spirit abiding in God and God abiding in us, and lastly, knowing and loving God in his church daily. And see, when we truly practice what we preach, not only in words, but actions that are rooted in love, righteousness, and truth as commanded by God, see, we, we the children of God, are not only transformed and made whole into his image in this life, but even in the one to come, amen? So, what does this passage show us Christians about being the children of God practicing what we preach? Three things. An immutable love, freedom from sin, and an eternal identity. Again, an immutable love, freedom from sin, and eternal identity. So, let's start with an immutable love. So, in verse 1, we see it reads... 
see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Christ. So see, we can see right from the very start uh, in this passage, John passionately writes to a church that, that they seem to have forgotten their way, their identity, and most importantly, whose they are. But why? Why is John assertively communicating to this group of believers in this manner? Well, to answer that question, see, we have to skip down to a key verse, verse 7, where it reads, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, Christ, is righteous. See, it's in that very first sentence of uh, verse 7 that we find our clue. John is cautioning the church not to be led astray by false leaders, likely the Gnostics who were practicing and, and preaching Gnosticism. In fact, John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on you and on me, on us. So what kind of love does the Father give his children that John speaks of? Well, it's this. It's an immutable love. Or said differently, an unchanging, unwavering, or unfailing love that doesn't change ever. See, God's immutable love for us is a gift that we must freely Receive. We must choose to receive this gift. This love is not something that we have to work for as Christians. We can't earn our way into his love. We are already loved. The only thing that we can do is choose to receive his love and give his love back. And see, God practicing this immutable love he professes, a.k.a. preaches, see, it not only offers us, but it offers the world the gift of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as well as the gift of the Holy Spirit which we'll get to a little bit later. And those two things, Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, they can never be changed. See, the world doesn't desire what truly comes with a love that is rooted in God. You know, holiness, righteousness, repentance, submission, truth, just to name a few. Yet the world says it offers a love that's real and true. But see, check this out. True love holds us accountable to the truth of who God is as the ultimate immutable love we are all in search of. I'm going to say it again. True love holds us accountable to the truth of who God is as the ultimate immutable love we're all in search of. Or simply put, the world says that you and I, see, we can subjectively express love in words without having to commit or be held to showing the love. And family, that is not the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the truth about the world's quote-unquote love is this. The world only offers a love for sin of idols that deplete us and hold us captive while leaving us hopeless and less than whole. The world only offers a love for the sin of idols that deplete us and hold us captive while leaving us hopeless and less than whole. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. John points out in verses two to three why we as children of God have a hope in the gift of God's immutable love in the way of Christ. 
And so it reads, dear friends, now we are the children of God. Now we are the children of God. And right now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ, when he appears, we shall be made like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And it begs the question, so what exactly is John getting at here? Simply put, John is saying that no one has ever seen God the Father in his unmediated glory, not even the false teachers. But what we can know with great love and hope is the assurance that the children of God, we will be made pure like Christ at his second coming. And because of this, we the children of God, see, we must seek at every turn to intentionally live out this same love practicing what we preach. Think about this. See, when Christ showed up on the scene, God made him flesh. His very perfect nature exposed the lack of love within the world. Just like his love is the standard that, express, that, that exposes sin today. Yet, the same love compassionately affirms us, his children, when and where we align to him in his perfecting nature. And so, we, the children of God, when we turn from our sinful ways to receive the immutable love of Christ as our lordship, as the head of our lives, not only are the children of God, not only are we transformed uh, to look more like Christ, but we find life in death and freedom from sin, our second point. So let's look at freedom from sin. In verses four through six, John explains why we as children of God have freedom of sin in Christ. It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he may take away our sin. And in him, Christ is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, look, I know, I, I hear it, I hear it already. Some of you are already thinking this. Hold up, pastor. Now, you just said the children of God have freedom from sin. And pastor, by the way, you just read that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And pastor, one more thing, you just read that no one continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So pastor, are you saying that we, the children of God, can never sin again once we are in Christ? Uh, nope. I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. So then, pastor, what are you saying? Well, to truly understand these verses in this letter, we will have to understand what John means when he uses the word sin and sinning. So that begs the question, what is this sin that I keep referring to? Well, simply put, Sin is the breaking of God's law, or said in another way, it's the breaking of our relationship with God. See, we sin by thinking evil, speaking evil, acting evil, or even in some cases, omitting God's good. See, the idea of sin, and trust me, please hear my heart, please hear the heart of Mosaic. The idea of sin in the world is something that today that we all have challenges facing facing and even hearing and seeing. But really, the challenge, here's the challenge. The challenge is a challenge for us to truly be honest. Because we all know that others sin against us. 
flip side of that is this. We just don't like acknowledging that we sin against others. And so, John is not saying that once we become children of God that we will not sin. That's not, that's not what he's saying. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, as you'll see on the screen here, it reads, if we, children of God, claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we make Christ out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so what I believe John is getting at is the verb or the present tense of sinning meaning that the children of God, that we are not recklessly or habitually practicing sin without remorse or repentance to God's law. In addition, John says that anyone who is practicing worldly sin has not seen nor do they know Christ. Because see, the more we sin, the more we lose ourselves. And the more we lose ourselves, the more our connection is lost to God. I'm going to say it again. The more we sin, the more we lose ourselves. And the more we lose ourselves, the more we lose our connection to God as well as our brothers and our sisters. And so a person practicing sin has no disregard for God or nor do they desire to know God's will and love for them. And the people who do call themselves Christians and religious, yet they practice what the world teaches and preaches as the gospel, are living a life of eternal death and not a godly life of love, truth, and righteousness. Which brings me right back to the false teachers, the Gnostics that John is likely speaking of in verses 7 and 8, where it reads, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he, Christ, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. And as we all heard again, because the devil has been what? He's been playing that same soundtrack, sinning from beginning. That's, the, that's his only move. And so the reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy that very soundtrack, put an end to it. Take the one-hit wonder off the radio waves, y'all. And so the Gnostics, see, this is what they were doing. They were likely teaching that sin is not important, which, by the way, flies in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a total contradiction. Amen? But the good news is this. Here's the good news. In Christ, there is no sin. Amen? See, God made flesh. He came and he died so that he could take away our sin. And this is why we, as children of God, should not seek to recklessly or habitually uh, practice sinning. See, sin should not have power over the children of God. Where sin loses its power is where the children of God discover our greatest freedom in Christ for all to experience. The freedom from sin, see, it's not that our flesh won't be drawn to sin, but it's that we have a new birth, a new nature in Christ, as we'll discover in our final point today, an eternal identity. And so in verses 9 through 10, John explains what I believe is the most central point of today's message, and it's this. The why and how as we, the children of God, have an identity in Christ to practice what we preach. And so verses 9 through 10, it reads, No one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning 
Why? Because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Pay close attention. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And see, if becoming a new person in Christ was done in our own power, our own strength, our own might, then might everyone do it? Don't answer that. Just ponder it. Just ponder. But might I submit to you that forming a new identity in Christ is not our own doing, but the doing of a lovingly father in heaven who, who simply wants to connect himself to us or us to him and the rest of our greater spiritual family. And now that we know the why or the reason for spiritual adoption into God's family, let us touch on the critical point for how spiritual adoption happens. And it's this. We must be born of God and his seed remains in us. We must be born of God and his seed remains in us. Which begs the question, what exactly does it mean when John writes to be born of God and God's seed remains in his children? Well, to answer that question, I turn to the very words of Jesus himself in the third, uh, in the third chapter of the gospel of John, not to be confused with first John, the gospel of John, John chapter three, verses one through 21, and no, we are not gonna read all of them, where there's an account about a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He is questioning Jesus and his teaching. Now, for time's sake, here's, what, here, here's the clip notes version. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that no one can see or come into the kingdom of Jesus unless they are born again. Jesus' response baffles Nicodemus and leaves him wondering how someone, likely himself, could be born again. While Nicodemus is pondering Jesus' initial response to being born again in the flesh for a second time, he also says this in verses 5 and 6 of John 3. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, when you get time, you can get home and you can finish up reading the remainder of the story. But let's just say this, that Nicodemus is quite stumped literally about being born again in the spirit as he questions and you'll see he questions he said how can this be which is actually a great question it really is a good question so how can this be well the answer as we all have heard growing up to most questions when asked in church is what Hey, come on, somebody. You've been around a few. But all kidding aside, all kidding aside, what the gospel of John, as well as the apostle John's letter is getting at is that it takes sperma, a supernatural birthing or regeneration of seed for a person to be born of God and to become a child of God. And because they're born of God and God's sperma or seed is in them, then everyone should be able to experience the observable fruit in our lives, the children of God, when we are truly practicing what we preach. Case in point, if I were an apple tree and these were my branches, what fruit would I produce? That's right, not Jesus. I did see somebody mouth Jesus. Close. You were practicing what you were preaching. <laughs> but close. Apples is the answer. But let's say on these branches, I decided to tape and tie peaches. Now, would this actually make me a peach tree? 
Of course not. And why? Because the very seed of my existence is that I'm an apple tree. I can only produce apples. And so it goes with being born again as the children of God practicing what we preach. And it's this. You and I, we can't profess to be righteous and children of God and not love our brothers and sisters. See, we simply can't say that we don't hate them or that we love our brothers and sisters and then not show them love in action. Like we can't do that. In addition, we can't claim to walk in love and and completely be disconnected in relationship with God as well as our brothers and our sisters. See, that simply is not the truth at all and that is not the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so as I close, when we, God's children, surrender to Christ and receive the Holy Spirit's eternal identity of operating within the soul in which we are regenerated, then and only then, Will our lives as the children of God have the observable fruit of practicing what we preach in love, righteousness, and truth? And that's not only towards God, but that's also towards our brothers and our sisters. And so this is how the gospel begins to make us whole. It's this. It frees us from sin while at the same time It frees us from living for ourselves. It frees us from sin and from living for ourselves. And so, having considered everything that you've heard today, I leave you with this final question. And the question is this. If your life's fruit, you practicing what you preach in its entirety, were put on full display for all to see right now, then whose child would you be? Whose child would you be? If your life's fruit, all that you practice and preached in its entirety were put on full display right now, whose child would you be? And with that, I'd like to extend an invitation to anyone and everyone in the room as well as though as well as those of you that are online with us today and it's this to become a child of God and to be made whole to be made new in Jesus Christ freely receiving and confessing him as your lord and savior and so if you would like to receive the forgiveness of sin and salvation and be made new and enter into a new relationship with Jesus then I'm going to ask everybody stand with me Everybody, let's stand together as we all bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray together aloud the following prayer, repeating after me. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Today, I confess Jesus, the Lord of my life, I repent and believe he died for my sins and rose again to give me life. I receive this new life. Make me new in Jesus. This is my new beginning. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. 
Amen, church. Amen. And thank you for those of you that have received Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.